we have for uh, 20 plus weeks now in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And our theme um, for the series as a whole, as many of you know, is that Jesus is king. And so we're talking about these earthly kings for the Israelites, first King Saul, and then later uh, King David. We see that they just do not, uh, they just do not do <laughs> what we hope they do. They just fall short, just like you and I. And so even though Jesus is not mentioned in 1 Samuel, we see that uh, through light of the, the New Testament and the new covenant that we have with him, that Jesus is the better king. So that's our perspective as we look at all of scripture. We see how it points to Jesus. And tonight we're going to be in chapter 24. And the theme is that we are ministers of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation. You see, to catch you up, if you're new to us uh, here talking about 1 Samuel for the last six or seven chapters, we have seen King Saul, who is jealous, he's insecure, he knows that his throne is going to end, that his kingship is coming to a close, and that David is the next man up. And so he has been seeking him, he's been trying to kill him, he has been doing everything he possibly can to cause David's death. But God has his hand on David, he's got his favor on David, and he's got a plan for David, he's not going to let David die. And so, tonight... The tables turn. All of a sudden, David, for the first time, now he has a perfect opportunity for revenge. Like if he wants to kill Saul, he could do it. And he gets to choose. Now, everybody around him and even uh, just rational thinking would say, you know what? You need to take this guy out. You should do this. But David doesn't do it. He has mercy on Saul. Let me ask you, um, just... As a, as a nice little icebreaker, are you a, are you a vengeful person? Do you, um, when you are wronged, do you, without even thinking, do you want payback? Do you want them to feel the pain that you have felt? Do you seek that justice is not only uh, taken care of in this case, but it's, it's administered by you? Um, are, do you see yourself as a vengeful person? person. I don't know that many of us, maybe a few of us, would say, yep, I, I think I am. I got issues. Well, I love you. We could talk more in depth about the grace of God here in a bit. But um, I think for most of us, we would probably say, no, I don't, I don't think I'm a vengeful person. Maybe I struggle a little bit once in a while with, um, with a heart that doesn't forgive. But we have to understand, even in our society, we have a gateway uh, emotions, gateway personality traits that lead to uh, a heart that does not forgive. Let me give you just kind of an example here. Um, this might not make sense at first, but hopefully it will. Competitiveness. Now, when you think of just being competitive, you usually probably think of that as a good thing, right? Like our culture, our society tells us that being competitive is good. From an early age, we're taught to be good at sports, uh, whether it's uh, something other than sports. It could be everything from the spelling bee to, you know, whatever. You fill in the blank of extracurricular activities at school. We want to teach our kids to be better than the person next to them. Your team needs to be better than that team. You need to be better than that person at all costs. Be better than them. Do we not teach them that? We teach them that. Now, let me give, me give you an example of this. When Tara and I first uh, got married, we were brand new into this whole marriage thing, and we're learning to, to be together, and it was good. And I remember one night 
often started this game that we've played several times in our marriage and it's almost led to divorce each time. But when it first happened, I, I was kind of caught off guard because I didn't think that this would be something we would do because it's very silly. But one night before we went to sleep, we said, as we always do, uh, we pray together and we say good night, which is very common if you're married. Hopefully you say good night to the person uh, next to you, to your spouse. And so I said good night. She said good night. And then I said, now normally you, you zip it at that point and just go to sleep. I said, night. Again, now that was two night. Uh, that was two times I said good night. She said, night. Then I said again, good night. She said, night. And before you know it, <laughs> we started saying back and forth, good night, good night. And at first it was just like, okay, this is weird. But we started to giggle. We started to laugh a little bit. I kid you not, 15, 20 minutes later, we are laying in bed. We're, we're both on one hand laughing hysterically because we're crazy. On the other hand, we're doing whatever we possibly can to be the last person to say good night. And so it got really quiet and it would be just still and it'd be like, or, or be like, <coughs> good night. Okay, we got to quit. We got to just stop messing around. <coughs> good night. And like we would just do whatever we could to be the last one we had to win. Now, at first you hear this and you think, that's just silly. But when you're in the moment, you got this competitive nature that says, I just, I just want to win. I, I got to be, I got to have the last word. Do we not? I think we can all relate to something like that. You see, when you're playing games, it's called competitiveness, and it might be a good trait that leads to winning, but when it comes to relationships and life, it's called revenge and unforgiveness, and it always leads to losing, does it not? And yet we're trained. We're trained to have a heart that seeks payback. And so as we walk through this, as we walk through this, I want you to ask yourself, um, do I have forgiveness issues? Now, being a pastor for several years now, I can tell you anytime we talk about forgiveness, even if I'm the worst preacher in the world and I just mention forgiveness, it's always hopefully going to be impactful for someone because we as humans just flat out struggle with forgiving one another. But our power comes through Jesus and he changes everything. And so by the end of tonight, I hope that you first have an encounter with Jesus and second, see that his forgiveness received by you and flowing through you uh, is not only beautiful, but offers an amazing amount of tangible relief and rest on your part. So let's walk through this. We're going to stop three times uh, through chapter 24, looking at David and what he can teach us about having mercy on one another, forgiving one another. Verse 1. Now, when Saul returned from the Philistines, remember, David was about to die at the end of chapter 23, and then Saul got called off to go kill the Philistines. Now Saul's back. He was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, just to give you a, a picture <laughs> of this, here's what's going on. We're talking about the Dead Sea and the western shore of the Dead Sea in the Middle East. You've got all kinds of bluffs and cliffs and just rugged mountain country. And David has been in there hiding in cave after cave after cave. And some of these are huge crevices where you can hide hundreds of men. And Saul's finally like, you know what? I'm going to take 3,000 of my best men. We're going to hunt you down. We are pretty sure that we know where you are, and we are going to 
come find you. So sheepfolds, uh, by the way, wild goat uh, rocks, these are all geographical parts of this, um, this ridge, this mountain range. And, and Saul goes in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Don't you love friends that get you in trouble, that take God's word and twist it a little bit to work in your favor? Um, This is what's going on right here. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Another great word for conviction. David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. He's calling Saul his Lord, his master, his king. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him. So he's calling Saul his Lord, but then he's referring to Lord God as uh, Lord over even Saul. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All right, let's stop there. First thing we see when it comes to revenge is that there is certainly a temptation. There is the temptation of revenge. So this is it. Like this is a perfect opportunity. David can finally kill and just end this. I mean, okay. If you've been with us week after week after week, maybe maybe you're starting to grasp it. But if you're new, then this might not make sense. Saul has been a horrible, horrible person. He's throwing spears at David, and then he's like, "No, no, 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 I'm good. I just had a I had a meltdown. I I, I just come on, everything's good." And then now they get back together, and he throws more spears at David. Like he wants to kill him. He he has been nothing but a thorn in the side, and a good chunk of the people don't even like Saul anymore. Because he don't follow the Lord, and he's just a punk. So if David kills him, he's already got an army, and he's like, we'd love to kill him too. And he would, he would slide right into kingship. Things would be good. But he knows. God has said, you do not put a finger on. You don't lay a hand on. You don't harm the Lord's anointing. And he called Saul king, and so he's anointed by God. And David, his heart says, oh my, why did I give in? Why did I fall into the temptation in the moment? I wanted it so bad and I went and I cut off this robe just to let Saul know that, hey, I could have done something to you. And he has conviction. You ever fallen into the temptation of revenge? Maybe in the moment you got people whispering in your ear, hey, you deserve better than this. Hey, you, know, you need to pay them back. Hey, if you don't do something, when are they ever going to learn? all the time. I remember when I was in high school, this can get you in a lot of trouble. Now, keep in mind, I was just a heathen, uh, right? So I didn't know Jesus, and I was just being a goofball. In high school, you have uh, friendships, but then you get maybe a rival once in a while, people that you just can't stand, and you just get more and more and more and more uh, to a place of despising them. By the time I was a senior, many of you know uh, this story, so I won't go in too deep on it, but 
one day in February of my senior year when I was in shop class and there was uh, a young man who was making fun of me. He was mocking me. I'd known him for years. Uh, his name was Chris, and he just, he just hated me, and he told me how he hated not only me, but he hated even the girl I was dating, and uh, she was of another race, and so he was making fun of that race, and just all these things that would justify, uh, you know, fighting this kid, and there was only one other person in the room. And after 45 minutes of this kid just making fun of me and saying how he wanted to fight me, hated me, my, the other person in the room just happened to be my best friend. And I said, what do you think, Nick? What do you think about this? What, what should I do? And he's like, beat him up. Do something. You got to do something. And you guys know the rest of the story. I did, and it, it landed me in jail. You say, that's a bad friend. Well, I wasn't any better. Six weeks later, after all of that, even after we had a, a huge scare in that the sense that I got arrested in high school and, and went to jail, we were being stupid again, and we were at this party out in the country, and my friend Nick, the one who kind of egged me on, now he had a rival kid who he didn't like, and you know how small town petty games go, and I started saying, you know, if not now, when? When are you going to teach him a lesson? And before you know it, by the end of the night, they got into a fight. He ends up days later getting arrested. We were in jail at the same time <laughs> together, like on other parts of it. And we were looking, I was looking at my life months later thinking, gosh, we were stupid. But that's what friends do when you got evil in your heart. You egg each other on to make mistakes. And that's what David's men were doing to him. He fell in the temptation. Now, when you realize that someone has sinned against you, when someone has done you wrong, when there's an injustice, you've got two major questions you've got to ask yourself. This is just in life in general. Number one, who administers justice? Now, for some, you might just straight up say, court system, I'm going to leave it up to them. The law can get involved. But who administers justice? Some of us who like to take situations into our own hands would say, well, I could administer justice. The truth is, God administers the justice. Now, sometimes it's through the court system, and sometimes it's not. But either way, it's God who is the one to administer justice. There's a second question, and it might not seem so obvious, but it's just as important. It's just as important. And that is, when this justice that you hope is carried out, when it's against man, person versus person, isn't it really being carried out against God himself? I told you it didn't seem like an obvious question, but think about it. You see, David sees revenge in Saul, and he says, I'm going to take it, and he cuts off the rope, and then boom, his heart strikes him, and he says, no, I wasn't just fighting against Saul. God ordained Saul. I'm fighting against who? I'm fighting against God. And so you say, well, yeah, but that was a leader. That was a king, right? So believers, though? Are we not filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Are we not anointed by God? You can't be any more anointed than having God's Holy Spirit in you. You've got God's hand on you. And so you say, well, well we really shouldn't have revenge issues in the church then, should we? On non-believers. Right? Or you say, but what about non-believers? I mean, you could, you could carry out justice on non-believers, right? Because they're not leaders, and they're certainly not in the church. They're just non-believers. Are they not still created in the image of God? You see, ultimately, you fighting against your worst enemy on earth is still a slap in the face to the God who created you. 
that make sense? You, you, you might say, I'm stretching this, but you go deep enough into any relationship, any situation, ultimately, you're probably going to find yourself, if you're fighting against man, you're going to find yourself fighting against the God who created you. Because we weren't created. You know, come on, you know we weren't created to fight each other. And you say, well, this <laughs> when two warriors fight each other, it makes sense. You ever seen, like, uh, you ever seen a family fight each other? And just ha- how does it make you feel inside? Like, oh my gosh, this is this makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> this is weird. Mom and dad fighting each other, aunt and uncle fighting. This is weird, and they're splitting in their sides. Or even you watch a football game. I was watching Alabama USC, and they showed a clip this weekend on the Alabama sideline. The football players are just screaming at each other. Uh, even as a spectator, I saw it. And I thought that makes me uncomfortable. Teammates shouldn't fight. What's the deal? But when we fight, when we take revenge out on one another, ultimately we're taking out on God. Do you despise the government? Who put that government in place? Romans 13, there's no authority except what God has given. They might be jacked up, they might be crazy, but God knows who they are. And he might be carrying out his plan. Matter of fact, it says he is carrying out his plan. Do you fight against those who want taxes from you? You're fighting against God. You fight against the president. You say, well, I can bash him. I don't know if he's a believer or not. No, you're fighting against God. Of course, it's cool right now to hate on the police. Who put the police in charge? Or the government? Who put the government in charge? God. You don't like what a judge has to say? Who put that judge in place? You say, okay, well, that's just the government. That's a Romans 13 thing. Listen, you're fighting with your coworker. You're fighting with your boss. Are you not ultimately fighting against God's provision? He put you in that job to provide for you, to minister to other people. You're fighting against the provision of God. You're fighting with your kids. What's the definition of a child according to Scripture? We see in the Old Testament they are literally a, a blessing from God. Now, they might not always feel like blessings, but that's their definition. So you're fighting. When you fight with your kids, ultimately you're fighting against God's blessings. Does that make sense? This changes the way you look at revenge because ultimately you're fighting against God. You're fighting against God. You see, there's a fundamental difference between the way that Christians look at one another or look at people and the way that non-believers do. We're called as believers to look at each other not because or not primarily image-wise because of the sin that we commit against one another or what we do. We are called to view one another as God created us to be. No matter how short we might fall of that, it changes the way you view things. And I'll tell you this, if you, as your disposition, you look at the people around you, your coworkers, whatever, believers or non-believers, if your disposition is to primarily identify people as how they're broken, well, they're just a sinner, well, they're just messed up, you will always be more tempted, you will always be more tempted to take justice into your own hands. But when you view the people around you as a child of God, as someone created in the image of God, it's a lot easier to trust God to take care of the others. Is it not? There is a temptation of revenge. Verse 8. And we're going to get pretty practical here. This is David's response now. 
Now afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in that cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. He's being kind of bold for someone who's got 3,000 men wanting to kill him still, right? And I, I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he's calling Saul his father, which technically at this point they're father-in-law, son-in-law. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, meaning may God punish me if I'm wrong. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. So that old proverb, he's saying, hey, I am pure in heart and my actions are pure. If not, well, then I might be capable of that wickedness. Second thing, oh, we got two more verses. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea, David's basically saying, I'm nobody, I'm a nothing. Why are you hunting me down like this? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Second thing we see is there is a better way than revenge. Each one of these is really a three-step process that we see David partaking in and that we should take part in humility, forgiveness, and trust. Now, we're going to break down each one of these a little bit based on what we see uh, with David. So, the first one, humility. David shows great humility. If you've got forgiveness issues with someone, you have got to show humility. You see, because people in general, become exalted and given authority by two primary means. This is outside of God, straight up giving authority. But on earth, two primary means. Number one, people give people authority. We elect presidents, we elect kings, we give each other authority. Number two, our circumstances give us authority. For example, David, his circumstances gave him authority. People didn't give him authority, but he saw that he had Saul in a compromising position, and the guy who wanted to kill David is now sitting there relieving himself in the darkness of a cave, and David's standing there, and all of a sudden, his circumstances just gave him the power. Well, I got, I got the power. I can do whatever I want to you. You ever been in that position? Maybe you haven't been given power by those around you, but all of a sudden you found yourself, <laughs> looky, looky. I got a little bit of power now because circumstances give you power. And that's what happened to David. You see, when you're wronged, when someone sins against you, by design, that gives you a little bit of authority. 
a little bit of power, does it not? You ever heard someone say, hey, when in, in an issue, a conflict, the ball is in their court? The ball's in their court. What do they mean? I mean, they've got the authority now. They've got the next move. They've got the power. Because I have messed up or they have messed up, whichever one, the person who didn't mess up is the one with the power. And so humility is crucial because when you have unforgiveness issues, basically you're sitting on the throne playing judge and jury over the situation, deciding your next move. And if you want true mercy to take place, you've got to remove yourself off the throne. That's why unforgiveness is such an issue for so many of us. It's not the forgiveness in and of itself. It's the fact that we got to get knocked off the throne and give up control if we want to truly forgive. Do we not? For David, humility wasn't simply bowing down, which he did. That's humbling. For David, humility was starting a conversation. He didn't just bow down to Saul. He said, you know what, let's talk about what happened. For some of us, that's a huge act of humility that we might need to take tonight. Someone has wronged you, and you know, you know what, I have sat on the throne uh, of this situation, looking to determine what my next move is, maybe for days, months, or years, holding all the power in. And I need to get off that throne, and my next step is to bow to Jesus and to start a conversation with the other person. Of course, if your issue is with God, <laughs> he's the one you need to start the conversation with. I had a friend um, early in ministry that showed potential to possibly be not only a leader in the church, but maybe even a pastor. Said he had that calling on his life, and I trained him. I spent time with him. He had different work hours to where we could get together throughout the week, and I would I would pour into him. And man, I was putting, um, because we lack leaders, I was putting all, all my marbles in one basket here, all my eggs in one basket here. And I was, I was pouring into him and how to be a, a pastor. And about a year into our relationship, I started to see something was going wrong. Like I, they, him and his wife, his family, they weren't, there was just issues. I could tell they, they didn't, something was wrong. Every time I saw them, they avoided us. And they, I, I finally, after a couple months, and, and I finally just sat down and said, what is going on? And they said, we're leaving the church. And I said, what? What in the world? And they listed several reasons. And these reasons were, um, hey, you don't invite us over as often as we'd like. Uh, you, um, I mean, I don't want to make fun of the situation, but they were they were pretty trivial. Like you, uh, you don't smile at us. I mean, the kind of that kind of stuff. One time one of them was on the, their phone and I said, we were in the middle of a meeting. I said, hey, could you, could you put your phone down? And they said, oh, I was just taking notes. And, and I said, oh, my bad. And that was one of the things that really stung for them. And I was just like, you know that we could have dealt with these issues, right? Like if we would have dealt with them one at a time, they said, yeah, probably. And I said, you know the enemy is tricking and deceiving you to have bitterness towards me right now. Do you know that? Yeah, we know. We're trying not to listen to the enemy, but we know we have. It was a bad situation. The church had a little bit of a split from it, and, and they left around the time that we left that church plant, and a couple years later, there's a bunch of sourness still from the situation. He shot me a Facebook message. I don't know if his pastor at that time preached one of these forgiveness sermons or what. But he sent me a Facebook message and said, I just want to know, I just want you to know I'm sorry. 
for how that ended this week, how we respond. It's huge acts of humility, but the act is to start the conversation. We work through our issues, but if you don't start the conversation, it's going to be hard to work through your issues. The next thing we see there is not only humility, getting off the throne, but forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, what you see with David is he's saying things like, I spared you, and you hunt me down, but I'm not going to repay. He, he kind of boldly tells Saul, hey, all the power is in my court. I could have killed you right now, but I'm choosing not to do it. What is he essentially saying? Because he doesn't just straight up say, I, I just want you to know I forgive you. But he kind of is. Because what he's telling Saul is, I had the right to kill you, and I had the opportunity to kill you, and I gave up that right. Part of the definition of forgiveness is giving up your right to hold a grudge. Giving up your right to get back at someone. You see, you can't say that you forgive someone verbally and yet not give up the control to get back at them. It's not something that you can bring up in the future and say, you know what, I know I said I forgive you, but now that you've got a couple other mistakes that have built up and I see a pattern in your life, I want to go back to that one thing you did years ago. Like that, you can't do that because true forgiveness says in this circumstance, I am giving up my power to get back at you, my right to get back at you. I'm giving this to the Lord. I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to keep walking. Now, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean you forget. It's going to be pretty hard. Biblically, the Lord forgets your sins. That's what forgiveness looks like from him to us. But as humans, we see it's it's pretty difficult to forget. But we can forgive. You've got to give up control. Forgiveness is a control mechanism. It's a self-preservation. When you get hit physically, you ever been slapped in the face or punched in the gut, and, and what do you do? You, you, you move like this or you crunch like this. It is self-preservation to pull and to clam up. And emotionally, we do the same thing. When someone sins against us emotionally, we say, you know what? Now the authority is mine. I got the power. It's in my court. I'm going to take it. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to hold it over your head. But in Jesus, you know that you don't have to preserve yourself because you're a new creation in him. And not only do you learn because of his forgiveness for us, you know you don't have a reputation to protect anymore. You don't have a life that is perishable in the sense that we need to protect it anymore. You got eternal life in Christ. You don't have to worry about protecting it. So to take a step, as David took a step, is you got to open that door not only for conversation, but you got to get real about the issues. He straight out calls Saul out on the issues. And he's saying, I know that you have been hunting me down. It's been a bad situation. And he gets real about it. You got to stop holding grudges and you got to get real about what's happening. You got to get real. They say that unforgiveness is. Um, it's like drinking poison expecting the other person to die. There is an intake of something that you hold on to. That's the grudge. That's the grudge. It's kind of like, this is, this is silly, but <laughs> tell you what, there's, there's a lot uh, of correlation between holding a grudge and, and getting a two-year-old to take a nap, even today. Um, it's been crazy in our house because Silas, a couple weeks ago, 
he got a big boy bed. And it's a huge deal for little boys because now he's like, I'm a big boy. This is great. But he, we can't trust him. We can't trust him for nothing. So we got safety locks on everything. And, and yet he rips them apart and he just goes right through them. I mean, he's just when one morning I came downstairs and, and I didn't hear him even moving. And Tara was behind me. I was like, is he going to sleep? I can hear a little baby boy sleeping. And I go jiggle the door and it's locked like he had woken up locked the door on us and went back and played like he's just he's just hard to trust and today I came home uh, a couple hours ago and he was waking up from his nap and I didn't know that he had woken up and Tara um, she thought she maybe heard him rustle but she wasn't sure as to what was happening and and then we were talking and, and Silas his room is downstairs and we were upstairs and we thought okay he'll start crying and we'll go down and get him any minute but then we started hearing weird sounds like what is going on like just a little little scrapes and scratches and just like what is happening it wasn't pitter patter we couldn't tell what is, is he awake where is he in the house and so i started to feel like there was a ghost in the house i said what what are you hearing silas he, he might be awake and so we said let's go look for him let's go look for him not knowing where in the world he might be he has the capacity to open that door and, and get out and we go into the kitchen, and there's a door from the kitchen that, that goes to the stairwell. And there's just a little four-by-four four platform at the top of the stairs. All we have is our, our recycling paper and stuff that's going to go in the trash, and it's sitting there. And I get into the kitchen, and I see under the door just trash, just like recycling trash everywhere. And I look at Tara, and I say, what in the world? It's like there is a ghost in the house that is messing with us. What is happening? And then we hear this scratching on the other side of the door. And I opened it up and Silas is sitting there in the dark with all the recycling just thrown everywhere. He's pushing it under the door and he looks up at us and he says, I was We're like, what are you doing throwing trash everywhere? And he's just like, I was trapped. I was trapped. And we looked at each other like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. This is so weird. But isn't that kind of the definition of a grudge? Something trapped inside, and the only thing it produces is trash, is junk in your life that poisons you over and over and over. You might say, why do you got your son down in the basement? Hey, why do you hold grudges deep down inside? You see, I can go both ways with that. And last but not least on that, the trust issue. I'm not saying to trust the person. When trust is broken between people, it takes time to rebuild. The trust is that God is the God of justice. Je- or excuse me, David in verse 15 says that vengeance is the Lord. And so you're trusting that God is going to take care of the situation. Now, I know if you're anything like me and you say, oh, we're just going to trust that God, uh, this God of justice, that God is going to take care of this situation. Because it looks like a lot of people who have messed up are getting away scot-free on earth, doesn't it? And sometimes it feels like a cop-out. Now, first off, be aware that if your desire to see those hurt in your life or those who have hurt you, if your desire is for them to have immediate punishment from God, that goes both ways. Do you want God to do that with you? But listen, the Father has a heart and a plan for each one of us. And we got to recognize that sometimes when he waits for the punishment on earth, and and some of it isn't going to come until we see him face to face, sometimes it's a sign of his patience. Sometimes we discipline Silas immediately, and it's good. Other times, we back off for a second, and we see, is he going to do the right thing? Because we know what we're doing with him, and we know 
sometimes it's good to step forward. Sometimes it's good to pull back. And God does that when he's working with us and he's really disciplining us. So the trust is for the Lord. Last but not least, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, so here's Saul's response now. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Man, Saul is laying it on thick. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. That's a, that's a key promise. You'll see if you read through 2 Samuel, David never, he, he doesn't kill Saul's household. That you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That last verse is key because they don't go home together. It's David says, you know, I'm going to pull back and we're going to stay up in the mountains. Because this looks like some reconciliation. You're saying all kinds of fluffy, sweet words to me, Saul. I like it, but I know you've got crazy written all over you. I know you're crazy. I'm married to your crazy daughter, Michael. She's a liar and she's got issues. We already read about that. And I know you are probably going to go back on your word. But hey, I'm glad that we're at least to this point, right? Last thing we see. In life, with relationships, whether it be with God or with each other, the goal is always reconciliation. The goal isn't winning. The goal isn't doing better. The one upping the other, the goal is reconciliation because it is better to be with someone than to be better than someone. The goal, if that was the case, man, we would never be with God because he's straight up better than us. He's more holy than us, and we would never work if it wasn't for the cross. So again, it seems like this is great reconciliation. Saul's saying all kinds of things. But for those of you who have read ahead, what happens in this story? Does Saul keep his word? Is he just a good friend of David for the rest of their lives? No. He goes back to crazy real fast. Real fast. So what do you do when the other person doesn't hold up their end of the bargain? Well, what did David do? See, David had a promise he wasn't going to kill off Saul's household. And they were punks. <laughs> if you read forward, he, they were punks. Remember the, the relative of him, uh, of Saul, who when David is walking down the road, getting pelted <laughs> by rocks, getting cussed at by this guy. Just, just a rough family. Because it's not dependent on what the other person can do for you. Mercy is dependent on what you've received from God and you freely give to those around you. If it's dependent on how the other person is going to respond, would any of us ever have mercy or grace on anyone? No. And would we ever receive mercy and grace? <laughs> Lord knows we fail. Lord knows we fail. Listen, David could have killed him, obviously. But for what? What does revenge get? What does it get? It gets death. 
is the epitome of our broken situation here on earth. The fact that we dive deeper and deeper and deeper with hate just so we and our flesh can carry out some sort of justice like we have that authority on earth. We don't kill, obviously. I'd hope most of y'all don't kill, but we argue. We go to bed mad at each other. We have sour friendships that sometimes end because we always want to be one-upping one another. We always want to show that they're wrong and that we're right and that we are the righteous ones. Let me ask you, if that's you, how's that working out for you? This is what happens when you take the American dream way of life from the corporate world into your relationships. The corporate world says you climb that ladder, you step on someone's neck, you get ahead, you do whatever you have to. It's going to work well when you take that attitude into relationships. It's just broken. But there's good news. As we've talked about each step of the way, Jesus is the better David. He is the greater David. David comes in this situation saying, you know what? I got every right to kill you, Saul, because you deserve death. But he spares the life of Saul. And and Jesus, seeing us, knowing that we deserve death because of our sin, says, you know what? (laughs) I'm going to save all of y'all. Everyone who calls me Lord, I will have mercy on you. Jesus proves over and over to us that he is the better David. And many of you are familiar with this passage, but if not, uh, I just want to read it to you and let it sink in. This is why we are ministers of reconciliation. This is our goal, because we have been reconciled to God, and it flows through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 16, Paul says this. He says, from now on, this is for those of you who are Christians, right? You've received the mercy of God. You deserve death, but he withheld it. He took it on himself. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Meaning we're not just going to look at humanity and say, hey, humanity deserves what humanity gets. But we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ, this is the key, through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sin against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation, that you won't count the sins of others against you. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, meaning we represent Jesus in these matters with one another. For our sake, excuse me, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the first step. That's the first plea. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus wasn't a sinner. He didn't deserve to die. He's the only one who didn't deserve to die. But he took on our sin in what we call the great exchange. Our sin is put on him and his righteousness is heaped on us. That when God the Father sees us, he sees his perfect son. For our sake, he who made him made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What stops you from reconciling with those around you? 
say, well, there needs to be justice in the situation. You're looking forward to justice. We as believers look back 2,000 years ago and say, listen, we were all on trial before the God of the universe condemned to death because of our sin, and yet Jesus paid the price. There is no more amazing justice than Jesus, the God of the universe, dying for us in our place. Maybe you still got a little bit of nastiness in you and you don't reconcile because you say to yourself, I want them to feel pain. They need to feel, they need to learn a lesson and they need to feel a little bit of pain from this, right? You mean like the pain of Jesus taking nails in the hands and his feet, being whipped, being beaten, being broken, not even recognizable as a human anymore in your place? You say, well, I can't reconcile, I can't forgive them because they just don't deserve it. You mean like us, who while yet still sinners, broken here on earth at the right time, Romans says, that Jesus became man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again so that we might have eternal life. You got no reason to not forgive But for some of us, you say, yeah, I know I don't have any reason to to hold a grudge, but it's easier said than done, right? And Paul says in er, in 2 Corinthians 5, I plead with you, brothers, be reconciled to God. You can't give something that you haven't received. To bow a knee to Jesus, just like David bows a knee, To Saul, who's unworthy, we bow a knee to the one who is worthy, even though we're not worthy. But I'll say this. We know Scripture promises there is rest in Jesus. There is relief in Jesus. Part of that is simply going and bowing a knee to Him and receiving His mercy. But the part most of us miss out on is that God's rest, his relief, his tangible blessing isn't just in what we have received from him. It's what we let him flow through us. This is why Jesus says, you forgive him. It's forgiven and what is done on earth is bound in heaven. You don't forgive them, you're not forgiven. Because what God does to you, He wants to do through you. And that's not just a command, that's half the promise that gives relief. You can always tell those around us who struggle the most with forgiveness issues because they're always bearing the greatest burden. Are they not? They always have the biggest weight on their shoulders. Now, there's a lot of reasons to have weight on your shoulders. But one main reason is that we're not letting God work through us to forgive. I don't know um, what you ate tonight. I don't know where you are spiritually tonight, but I know I know that these aren't one-time sermons that just fix everything. The key to have a disposition of forgiveness, to be able to quickly forgive one another, to trust God's got this, 
is to remind yourself to preach the good news of Jesus to yourself daily. I got it here personally. And guys, I'm in ministry. When I, have, when I minister to people, if I want to not have a grudge, if I, if I want to not become bitter towards someone, I've got to be reminding myself of my own brokenness and need for the cross and God's willingness to give me that grace and mercy. preach the gospel to yourself. So wherever you are tonight, I encourage you to take that step. To bow that knee to Jesus and to receive what he wants to give you. And then to be able to let that flow through you into those around you. If you'll take a spiritual deep breath that you've been needing to take for years. Let's pray.